I think that we have been in the bad place, not just for repro, but for so many issues for so long. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, a podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. I'm Layla Darby. And I'm Lori Edelman. This week, we watched The Good Place and asked Alencia Johnson, does Roe v. Wade have an afterlife? Layla, are you cringing or binging this week? I am binging. Actually, that's a little false. I've already listened to this podcast series, but I recommend that the Cringe Watchers binge a series called The Lie That Binds. It is put out by NARAL Pro-Choice America and specifically their CEO, Elise Hogue. The Lie That Binds is also a book that Elise wrote, but I recommend the podcast series where Elise and a journalist go through in six episodes the history of the pro-life movement and specifically the extreme far right selecting abortion as a wedge issue to build power. I listened to the first episode on a road trip with my mom, which was amazing to talk about her real life experience in the 70s, having to listen to these uh, to the birth of this horrible movement and also be part of uh, people trying to expand access to reproductive rights at the time. Uh, but even if you don't have those ideal settings, check out the podcast. How about you, Lori? Are you binging or cringing? I am cringing this week, Layla. And I am cringing the absolute disaster of people thinking that they are being subversive by not caring. And I think that is abortion related this week for me because that's the topic that we have. But in general, it feels like there's this phenomenon of like young, hot, hipster, don't have to care about rights. And I think the embodiment of this for me is the Red Scare podcast, which is this cultural commentary podcast. It's hosted by two women, Anna and Dasha, and they've become kind of cult figures. And they say that they sort of, they're feminist seeming or feminist adjacent. And they are kind of at the intersection of the dirtbag left and alt-right, like where those two things meet on the horseshoe. And I find it extremely alarming that they can get away with saying a lot of things specifically about abortion rights that are false um, and that are, you know, poorly understood. I, my ears were actually bleeding red uh, when I was listening to that episode. And they'll probably say, oh, another earnest feminist snowflake who's taking our content too seriously. But when you're making over $50,000 per month on Patreon and going around and representing an entire, you know, kind of generational uh, perspective on these issues, but you're underinformed and actually aligning with very right-wing men <laughs> and their takes on bodily autonomy, you're going to get called out. And I sort of see this as very related to, you know, people who think they kind of know better than the feminist movement. And my question is, are you reinventing the wheel for no reason? I think we could get more into this conversation and, and we will. Uh, but one of the reasons this is in the news right now and on our minds right now is because of the Supreme Court leak. And uh, the world is waiting for not just the US, but the whole world is waiting for the US Supreme Court to decide on abortion rights in this country. They Just for clarifying for people who might not be following this uh, as closely as we are every minute of every day, the Supreme Court is currently ruling on a case 
Dobbs versus Jackson, which would uphold or strike down a, a potential ban on abortion rights in Mississippi. But if that ban is upheld, it has the potential to overturn the national precedent, Roe v. Wade, federal protections for abortion rights in this country. And we know, uh, based on a draft leak from Justice Alito, that might be the most extreme case, but uh, hints that the full overturn of Roe is, is coming soon, that what that means is that states would be the deciders of abortion rights. And if you look at the current state of abortion rights in this country, laws governing or restricting abortion across the U.S., there are more than half of states either already have or are poised to put into place pretty severe restrictions on abortion. That means fewer people could have abortions, more people are going to have to travel. People, And most importantly, anybody who needs an abortion is going to have to navigate an increasingly complex and hostile environment, making the average person have to figure out laws, policies, medical procedures, travel, all kinds of things. And it's a huge burden. And it is why we wanted to dedicate this special episode uh, between seasons to abortion in the U.S. And we are staying true to our format. So we are using The Good Place to talk about this issue. And I want to give a huge spoiler. We have gotten in trouble for this in the past. If you have not watched The Good Place and are planning to watch The Good Place and do not want it to be spoiled, stop listening now. We are going to spoil a very large plot twist that takes place at the end of season one. And do not listen on if you do not want that to be spoiled for you. Yes. So the premise of The Good Place, for anyone who hasn't seen it, is that Eleanor, a character played by Kristen Bell, is not a good person. And she is told in the pilot episode of season one that she has died and she has entered the good place, which we interpret as heaven. And a character introduced to her as the architect, played by Ted Danson, uh, is welcoming her and giving her a tour of a very magical seeming place. And she quickly develops imposter syndrome and realizes that this is not where she should be because she was not a good person in her life. And uh, this afterlife looks designed for great people. She's introduced to a soulmate who's an ethics professor, neighbors who are a monk and a philanthropist. Uh, everyone has mansions. It's a beautiful place. And she doesn't know what to do. That's right. And the whole show is really about what happens when someone dies. Um, but it's also a uh, comedy and a sitcom. And you see that pretty much by the end of season one, because ultimately it's revealed that Eleanor is not actually in the good place. She is being tortured by a demon who is Ted Danson's character, as are all of the different people that she has met along the way. So that monk that ethics professor, that philanthropist. Um, this place is not actually the good place, but it is a specially designed community um, by which they are all in their own special version of hell, literally. Yeah. And I don't know about you, Lori, but when that philanthropist and that ethics professor, who I didn't realize until the end of season one, I was kind of projecting some relation to each of them as a do-gooder, a professional do-gooder, myself, I felt so exposed and so seen because uh, the Tahani character, the philanthropist, is an influencer who puts herself at the center of causes. Chidi, the ethics professor, is the Debbie Downer who's always pointing out to people what's wrong with the world and what they should be doing better. And I just uh, felt so seen and felt so guilty for playing into that idea that a person or a place could be all good or all bad. And I think that mm. binary is what got us here. And that's what we wanted to talk to our special guest about today. 
Absolutely. And what a special guest she is. Alencia Johnson is a brilliant political strategist. She runs her own consulting firm, um, which we'll put the link in the show notes. And we all have been in the trenches together at Planned Parenthood. We are not Planned Parenthood spokespersons, um, but that is how we met. And you'll hear in the interview that we have a familiarity with each other and with the movement that allows us to really spill some tea, which um, I think is really what's necessary in this moment. This is not the moment to pretend that everything is is all good, literally. Um, it is a moment to explore, you know, are we actually being tortured by demons and what can we do to get out of this place um, and get to a better place? Without further ado, we really hope you enjoy our conversation with Alencia Johnson today. Alencia, welcome to Cringe Watchers. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you both at the same time. It's been years since I've had this privilege of all both of your perspectives on one single topic. <laughs> this is really nice. It's been since the halls of our former workplace. <laughs> exactly. The pit. Yes. The media pit. <laughs> huddled huddled between the cubicles, as, uh, but probably for the same reason, everyone gathering because abortion rights were under attack for one reason or another. Yeah. I wish I could say how far we've come, but it doesn't feel like we've come that far these days. Nope, not at all. So we made you watch The Good Place and I hear that uh, you didn't, you hadn't seen it before, but now you're hooked. No, I hadn't seen it before and actually hadn't heard of it. And which is really sad to say, since I tell myself I'm a pop culture expert, (laughs) but I'm excited that it's on my radar. I enjoy it, find it hilarious. And so I'm glad that you all brought it to my life and my world. And then sorry for spoiling it. <laughs> I didn't want to sit down and watch three hours in one sitting. So it was actually really helpful. <laughs> we have gotten in hot water with our followers in the past for spoiling things. So I guess in this case, we've not only ruined it for our listeners, but also for our guests. So we're like expanding the spoiling empire. Before we get into it, if you had to pick a, a good place character, who do you most relate to? Are you a Chidi? Are you an Eleanor? Are you a Tahani? Ooh. Well, I'm at the point right now in it where Eleanor, we all know she actually should be in the bad place. Um, <laughs> and she's trying to figure out if Tahani is genuine, like she stole her diary or whatever. So up until right now, I would say I'm a mix between Chidi and Tahani as of right now. I could definitely see that. I'm curious if you would keep that answer once you get to the next season, but I could definitely see that. Certainly the style of Tahani, I will give you. Those who cannot see Alencia, she is a stylish person, probably the most stylish person in Repro. I'm going to go ahead and give that title, (laughs) which and no shade at all to Alencia, it's a low bar. But let's talk about this spoiler because it is kind of the reason that we're here today. So there is a season one twist at the end of season one of The Good Place. Everybody figures out, and specifically Eleanor figures out first, that even though they've been told they're in The Good Place, they're actually not. They are being tortured by a demon and... Um, We actually have a really serious topic that we're talking about with Alencia today. And so we kind of wanted to talk about that topic with this twist in mind. And the way that we're thinking about this is that so many of us kind of have gone through this same journey that Eleanor and her friends 
went through in season one of The Good Place, where we were told, we were sold a narrative, either implicitly or explicitly, that like progress is linear, that we reap what we sow, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And, you know, we go high when they go low, et cetera, et cetera. And we basically have been told that we will get what we deserve and that we deserve like beautiful things. Essentially, we deserve to be in the good place. But given just how dark and difficult these times are with you know, people literally being gunned down in grocery stores for their race, um, in schools just for the innocent act of being there. Um, we have bodily autonomy and rights being stripped away in this country. It kind of feels like it's past time to realize we're actually in the bad place. Like that, that really resonates for me. And I'm curious, Alencia, if it resonates for you, do you feel like we're in the bad place right now when it comes to repro or all of these other rights? You know, Lori, I could listen to you talk all the time. You give such hope <laughs> and inspiration in the way that you repeat all of those quotes that we've been told when we have been trying to sound the alarm. I think that we have been in the bad place, not just for repro, but for so many issues for so long. And it's interesting because when I started working at Planned Parenthood, I don't think you all know this. I didn't want to come work for Planned Parenthood and I had to get convinced Wow! <laughs> by a few people, um, a few friends uh, in politics. Um, and they literally were like, if you want to do more around women's issues, Planned Parenthood is nonpartisan, but they pretty much were like, if you want to do stuff around women's issues for the Democratic Party, you need to go work for Planned Parenthood and do some political work there. And I'm glad I took that leap of faith and moved to New York because I probably would have, I would have been angry before now, but I wouldn't have really understood how serious things were had I not been so intimately close to it and to the points that you were making of so many other issues. And I don't want to say other issues, so many things that are happening in the world, how connected it all is. Yes. And once I saw, I remember, was it 2015 when the key provision of the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to my grandmother about that, talking to other colleagues, and we were like, this is the moment that we need to be educating people on what the Supreme Court does, because yes, this is voting rights, but from that, everything else flows. All of our issues are interconnected from gun violence, which we all know the numbers that they're not reporting on is the cases of domestic violence and what's happening in the homes to reproductive rights, healthcare, to so many things, immigration, police brutality, all of those compounded issues. Literally, we have been in the bad place. And I think the carpet got pulled from under us when Obama became president, right? Like there was this, a lot of us on the left were like, oh my God, this is so exciting. And the right was like, how dare y'all put this black man in charge of this country? Point blank period. 100%. And they literally went for everything. And talking to a friend of mine this morning and she was, she said it so profoundly of how white supremacy is literally, or, or white people are dying 
and the last remnants of white supremacy are hanging on by a thread and they are coming for everything. They are trying to institutionalize white supremacy, even if the leaders are, are no longer here. I mean, we know that census shows us, data shows us who is going to literally, there's going to be, our nation is going to be overwhelmingly people of color very soon. Um, and women have more power and rights. And when birth control became legal, when we started going to college and we could buy our own homes and we could get our own credit card, all of these things, we could decide whether or not we wanted to have kids we literally started changing the world. And so we have been in this bad place. I think the Band-Aid got ripped off in 2008. And with Trump, literally, they poured more than salt in this open wound that was quite frankly a gunshot that they put a Band-Aid over. And now we are in the middle of trying to figure out how to fight back. But how do you fight back when your last saving grace is the Supreme Court. Where do we go from there when we have really young Supreme Court justices and one that should retire is not going to, or he should resign, he's not going to. So what do we do? I mean, that's what we wanna talk about today and like really sit with this uncomfortable conversation because one of the things Lori and I keep talking about is how quick we are, how our instinct is to say, okay, snap back. What do we do today? What do we do right away? How can we move forward? What's the next step without really pausing to reflect on what we've learned from, from the past and to do that self-critique? I mean, you just said that these issues are all interrelated. I think we all believe that. But as communications people working in this movement, I think we have failed to communicate about abortion in a way that people see as anything other than a standalone, very polarizing issue. And it's it has not helped us to put it in a long list of other healthcare. People always see it standing out, burning uh, as an outlier, uh, whereas the, the quote unquote other side has been very steadfast and leaned into that polarizing aspect of abortion and focused solely on that. I mean, I was just rereading a quote from you in Politico re uh, recently saying part of how we got here is that the right is extremely focused on their 50 year strategy to overturn Roe v. Wade. But they also won the cult culture war when a Democratic president with a Democratic Congress and Senate can't say the word abortion. So how do we how do we compete with that when our our quote unquote our side can't even talk openly about what we want to talk about? I said this on I think it was Ari Melber a few weeks ago. And I was like, look, I've worked for Biden. I also worked for Elizabeth Warren. She got out there pissed off. She didn't have to get, no one had to call Elizabeth Warren and say, go out in the streets. And I've still yet to hear Biden say the word abortion. And now I don't even think Vice President Harris, love her, who was a staunch champion for reproductive rights, including abortion care in the Senate and also as attorney general, I don't think she said it either. She's mentioned Roe v. Wade. She's gone a little bit further, but she hasn't said abortion. And so to your point, they have won this culture war. And it's really frustrating that me, myself, and I, as a Black woman from the South, whose daddy is a pastor, who believes in Jesus, who was a Brown refugee, who believed in justice, for them to warp Christianity and make this argument about religion is so incredibly disingenuous. It's hypocritical. It's also, this is actually not a religious arg argument. The, um, I'm so glad that you mentioned some of the history. There's also this Politico piece that really dived into where 
this religious culture war came from. And literally the extreme right white evangelicals were losing on segregation after Brown v. Board of Education. They said, oh, well, we're going to go over here to women's rights. They just codified or they just uh, upheld Roe v. Wade. And so we're going to go over here and try to control people's wounds. And just like the Second Amendment, it became this long-term steady reimagining and redefining what thing, what this means. And I hate to now be in the position where we have to kind of break down exactly what abortion care is. Like I, I didn't actually realize how much of, I won't even call myself an expert, but how knowledgeable I am on the importance of abortion care. And I, somebody asked me the other day, a journalist did, if where I lie in the spectrum of believing, in what cases do I believe that abortion should be legal? And I said, every single case, I, it doesn't matter to me why a person needs to seek out abortion. I said, that might not be my personal belief, but I'm never gonna tell that to anyone. And I'm never going to use my personal belief to legislate someone else's livelihood. And that that's literally the bare minimum that we're asking for people. But when I start breaking it down from the conversations that I've been having with OBGYNs, with nurses, with lawyers about people's hands have been tied, medical professionals' hands are tied now. And not only managing a woman's abortion that she chooses, managing miscarriages, the fear of what's going to happen to in vitro fertilization, the what we're already seeing and, you know, people legislating around contraception, emergency contraception, um, figuring out ways to use what potentially will, and I believe it will come out of this case to impact, infringe upon the rights of LGBTQIA communities. So it's really frustrating that this has become a religious argument. There's nowhere in the Bible that talks about abortion. And I, I could go down a whole rabbit hole about people like, oh, well, life begins here and there. And I'm like, listen, that's your belief. And we can't actually use that to legislate um, and actually, we can't use that to, to legislate and then fringe upon people's rights. But we all have to take a step back and really think about what is it that we are actually talking about in this moment. And I say that in a, there's been this conversation on the other side of this issue about families and children. And for me on this side of the issue, I'm like, oh, well then why are you all not for paid leave and universal childcare? And um, why are there so many black and brown communities in food deserts and climate deserts? Why are immigration policies so harmful? Why are babies in cages? Why are babies, going to school and fearful that they may not come home. Right? The list goes on and on and on and on. And so if you're supposed to be the party of family values, you're also supposed to be the, body, the party of Christian values, then what about taking care of the poor and taking care of the hungry and welcoming immigrants, being a good steward over the earth, meaning that you would support climate change. All of these things literally pull the carpet from the argument but back to your original statement about this culture war, Democrats have got to grow some balls. I'm sorry. And I know that's a very gendered statement, here, here. but like, I, I don't know how else to put it. Like grow some freaking balls. I, yeah. I also said this on national television, prime, prime time too. I was like, look, I'm a communications expert and Democrats have literally never figured out a narrative. Like yeah. we like do not have a message. 
how do you not have a message? The only message they had was in the 90s when it was the safe, legal, and rare. Y'all, we told you to move away from that. You had a lot of time. Move away from that framework and learn to say the word abortion. It's, it is so crazy. And I can just literally predict what's going to happen in the midterms because we ain't got no message. We have no message and we don't even have an umbrella message about how, yes, you can have your own differing opinions about whatever it may be, but these are the things that you have to vote for and show up for. Get your ass in line. Sorry, mom, if you're listening, like Mitch McConnell will get those Republicans in line. Yeah. And we, we don't have a counter message either. And to your point, like completely seeding the ground on very broad and basic concepts like life and family. I think or have been a big failure. And I know, you know, working on the global side of this, you see that ripple everywhere at the UN opponents of not just abortion, but contraception and girls' rights to, you know, be full humans are constantly trying to redefine family as just a, a man, a woman, a father and a mother. And this bleeds into LGBTQ rights, sexuality, gender identity. Uh, because they they have a strong message and it works here, it works around the world. Family is such a powerful platform to build on and uh, we've done nothing to take it back. I think that's right. And Alencia, you said, you know, I, I wouldn't call myself an expert. And I think for, I mean, first of all, obviously you are an expert. Um, so I can't let that stand. But also like through this process, really since I started working at Planned Parenthood, I realized the lack of education that people have, even people that you would assume know better, and especially Layla knows this is my favorite topic, men of the left, men of the left, okay? I have, there is a special place, you wanna talk about heaven and hell, special place in one of those for men of the left who do not see this issue as urgent, I think they're theoretically in support. And before you come at me and say, not all men of the left, show me your receipts. Where is the tweet from last year or the year before when we saw all of this happening? Um, because they do not have education around this. And I would hear the most ignorant statements, like just being out, you know, somebody asked me what I'm doing. Maybe I'm, um, you know, among younger 20s to 30s men who claim to be progressive. Um, and they would say the wildest things like, oh, you work at Planned Parenthood. You know, I always wonder, why don't you all just change your name? You know, there's so much stigma and controversy around the name. Why don't you just kind of go a different way? And I'm like, you don't understand. The stigma is not with the name, sir. Like the stigma is about the issues. And we actually like... People will do mental gymnastics to victim blame the feminist movement and the repro movement for our own issues when actually their lack of speaking up and their silence contributes to the stigma that we face. Now, I'm not saying we've done everything right. I totally agree. We we don't have the message. We haven't done enough to say, actually, we're the pro-life ones, to your point, Alencia. But um, it has just boggled my mind. And I think a good example of this is like the Glenn Greenwalds of the world. Um, you know, the people who actually are taking this moment, instead of kind of shoring up their support and coming out and saying, you know, listen, I might not agree on every issue, but this is a moment where we need to step up and come together and speak up for bodily autonomy. Um, they're actually going the opposite direction. Um, there are so many young women who disappointingly are, I think, 
failing to realize the significance of this moment. Um, and again, there's amazing, like so many young people who are a part of the reform movement and fighting for this. But we also see a lot of so-called feminists who are not pro-row or um, not stepping up in this moment. I think that's like a really big problem. So to that point, Alencia, we have a little exercise for you. There's some really pernicious narratives that we hear in all kinds of media, corners of the media. Uh, we want to just take a little moment, play a little game with you and just kind of get your short take or reaction to these different things that we always tend to hear about abortion rights or about Roe. So we're just going to give you a statement. You tell us if it's true or false and why. Okay. You down to play? Okay. Don't y'all judge me though if I get these <laughs> wrong. No, there's there's subjective. There's level of vulnerability. No, okay. you are the decider. Your your answer is the right answer. So <laughs> okay. Layla, do you want to do the first one? Sure. All right. First question is true or false, according to Alencia. Roe v. Wade was a flawed precedent anyway, and ultimately we'd be better off with a federal law. Oh false. Can I tell why? Yeah, definitely. I think we need both. We need a Supreme Court decision. And now I'm like seething. I know. Of the facts <laughs> Sorry, that like <laughs> now we've come to this. This is my political strategist hat now. Now we've come to this freaking place where everyone's like, we got to codify Roe. And it's like, this is not the first time that we've had a majority in the Senate and in the House. And we had a Democrat as a president. Like this isn't the first time since Roe this has happened. So y'all should have gotten off your butts and called for this years ago, not when you finally listen to people like Lori, Layla, and I, when we would tell you that this is coming. So yeah, we need exactly. it Okay, great answer. Second one, this is actually a, a summary of an actual Glenn Greenwald article. Abortion was nationally legalized through an elitist Supreme Court decision because most Americans don't actually support abortion rights. False idiot. <laughs> False. I mean, you know, he could have said now, he could have said it was decided through a white feminist lens, but that opens up the conversation of how we have to better organize to protect abortion care on the left. But that like, that's not what he was saying. No. But that is a good segue into the third true or false, which is true or false, divisions in our movement over race and class are what weakened it and got us to this point. Oh, I, I would completely say true. And I mean, if we're talking about race and class, that's the reason I work for Elizabeth Warren and not Bernie Sanders. And I will always say that publicly because you can't have a class analysis without a racialized analysis. And you can't have an analysis about gender without both. And literally every conversation I'm in right now about this moment, it's literally the women of color and queer folks like, we told y'all, yeah. we literally told y'all, we told y'all when this was happening, like how many times can we lose on a feminist principle without y'all listening to us? I mean, it, it's, and as I'm talking to people who ask um, where they should donate, where they should put their energy, I have to point them to so many reproductive justice organizations because you all know these are, people with barely any resources upholding whatever little lever they can, particularly in these states that are already have so many abortion restrictions. And so, yeah, yeah. true. That's great. So we actually, we're going to get to that because we want to ask you, how can people actually support this work moving forward? But before we do that, our last true or false, and this might be 
we, we might just need this one like a little bit louder for those in the back. But true or false, abortion is racist. Abortion kills black babies. Can we settle this once and for all on on this podcast on Cringe Watchers? I wish you all could see Alencia's face right now. Because <laughs> I hate this statement and I'm trying not to drop the F-bomb because my mama's going to listen to this. <laughs> because that is totally false. Oh my God. How did y'all start listening to this whole tip narrative? Lori, you said something earlier in our conversation about Planned Parenthood and just the terminology. And so... For those of you who don't know, I worked at Planned, when I worked at Planned Parenthood for six years, one of the projects that I had was to deep dive into our history, the history of the organization, into Margaret Sanger, and she's problematic. Look, Margaret Sanger is the quintessential white feminist. That's what she was, who thought she was doing really well, but she was so focused on her mission that she had a lot of blind spots that literally set off a domino effect for some really harsh realities for women of color. And the organization is doing a lot to atone for that. But in her advocacy, she worked with the Urban League. The Urban League approached her. She's worked with so many Black OBGYNs who literally, and this is even before the conversation of abortion came to being, it was this conversation of Black people being able to plan our families and being in the conversations of contraception, being in the conversation of safe pregnancies and being able to have children and not die. And I did come across this research where some folks from uh, the Guttmacher Institute actually had a conversation with Malcolm X. And I know, I literally text Jamila Lemieux, one of our favorite (laughs) Black feminists. Yes. I was like, girl, did you know this? And she was like, no, y'all should be screaming that. And so the conversation wasn't necessarily about abortion. It was about family planning. And it was actually about birth control, excuse me. And I'm paraphrasing. And so the Institute had gone to uh, Malcolm X and asked him, you know, what the Black community thought about birth control. And he was like, yes, the Black community, Black communities are in support of planning our families, but don't call it birth control because the terminology control and back to narrative, the term control does not sit well in Black communities. Exactly. Hello, Hello. So all you, you tips and, and quote unquote left men, especially like black folks, you have Malcolm X, uh, Dr. King was a staunch advocate for family planning, Shirley Chisholm, Dorothy Height, all of these black women and one black man, it was a 14 black women and one black man signed on to um, African-Americans was like for reproductive freedom in the 1980s or, abort- but it was explicitly advocating for abortion care through the lens of Black people and Black women. And so it is not killing off our babies. You know what's killing our babies? The fact that we're still in food deserts, gun violence that has been perpetuated by other communities, um, sending our kids to war. I was actually having this conversation with a friend of mine whose um, little cousin just graduated college and he's like, he's being recruited to the army. And I'm like, of course he is because they just wanna send our kids there. Police killings are killing our people. The fact that we are not getting healthcare is already killing our babies. And Black people already have the highest rates of infant mortality and maternal mortality. Eliminating access to abortion care will actually only make that worse. And as we all know, abortion is the floor. They're coming for so much more. And so if anything, don't have an opinion on it and just turn and listen to a black woman. I, I can't remember that Nas quote on his new album, but he was like, I'm paraphrasing. He was like, the only time you should be in a black woman's business is if you're giving her money. 
Otherwise, <laughs> stay out of Black women's business. Literally. Yeah. Like, you heard it. Cash app. We'll drop it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the point you're making uh, about uh, Planned Parenthood confronting the history of Margaret Sanger is so analogous to what we're talking about today, which I feel like I used to joke. I love Planned Parenthood, full disclosure, used to work there, still consult. And this is no shade to Planned Parenthood. But when I started working there and people asked me, what's it like to join this big advocacy organization and all the abortion? And I said, honestly, it feels like I work for the uh, National Pap Smear Federation of America because we don't talk about <laughs> abortion. We were under attack in Congress. And and uh, and then uh, there was that whole brouhaha with John Kyle, Senator Kyle from that lovely state of Arizona, uh, who who uh, claimed that Planned Parenthood, uh, that over 90 percent of what Planned Parenthood did was abortion when it was actually the other way around. And then as a comms team, we were scared. We were we were so afraid that contraception and abortion rights were going away in America. We kept talking about that, that 97 percent and all the pap smears and cancer screenings we were doing. And I feel like. This is a subjective view, but if you look back in history, when we started to get bolder and we started to talk more openly about, yeah, it's not everything we do, but we're solidly in favor of abortion rights and abortion became more prominent part of, of messaging, not just nationally, but at the state level. That's when you really see Planned Parenthood's advocacy thrive. We helped reelect President Obama and and, and I feel like the, the, the whole bold frame of like not being afraid to say it is what it sounds like you're calling on the Democrats to do right now. And it's the same way I was so we were so afraid to talk about Margaret Sanger and the and then and the imperfect history of family planning and abortion rights in America, that the work that you did to literally put it up on stages to say, this is our founder. She was imperfect. Almost lost my job. <laughs> no, but you brought together. Which is ridiculous. I mean, I feel like what you did, Alencia, was you invited really smart black women in particular to come together and say, we agree, flawed founder. We we we're, we want to create a platform for you also to critique her. And we're, we're recognizing and we're critiquing ourselves. And I feel like that's what Lori, when, when Lori and I were talking and she said, let's not rush to say where people can donate money. Telling people where to donate money makes us feel like we're doing something. Let's really think about where we went wrong. And, and that's where we got to. Who do we want to talk about that? Our <laughs> you know, all of what you're saying is there's so much in that and, and there's so much richness. And I feel like we were trying to do this at Planned Parenthood when people were actually scared to have this authentic conversation about Margaret Sanger. I'm like, we could actually be a model for, for the broader, not just the broader repro movement, but for the feminist movement of how you do better. Because every right. time reproductive justice leaders or black women or Latino women or queer folks would come to Planned Parenthood and say, hey, wait a minute, the whiteness would have people in tears, like, oh my God, we're being attacked. But folks are saying, no, 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 we're pushing and challenging you because we want you to be better. Mm -hmm. And actually let, let's invite you into a conversation and let's have these, we're, none of us are a monolith. And so let's have these nuanced discussions, which is also why going back to this fear of saying abortion and being bold with it, Faye Waddleton, like, I, I don't get starstruck for anybody. I literally tell folks, I'm only going to be starstruck to see Jesus. <laughs> there are some people who do give me pause on this land. And Faye Waddleton, I, I met her in a room of like some of the most fabulous and known Black women in New York City. I was 
hi, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. Faye Wilds and come. I like, I crumbled and had to ask somebody to introduce me to her because same, she, same. she like, she is so dynamic. And she was like, you want to know what I was facing in the 1980s? And I was like, Ooh. you're right. I, don't have, I have no reason to really be scared. And so I think we have to be bold with it because then that shows, honestly, this might sound controversial, I think the institutions who say they are for abortion rights have to be bold enough with that stance that the people who are within that movement who feel a little less comfortable talking about it that frame, they may not have to. Point, case in point, I remember when, what was it, the Pope came out and said that women could be forgiven for an abortion. And there was this whole thing. I remember everyone was like, we need to say the Pope can't determine that X, Y, and Z. And I said, hey, for non-Christians or people who do not believe in the concept of salvation, I understand what you're saying. I'm a Christian. There are decisions that I make in life every single day. And I literally ask for forgiveness every single day. And that doesn't make me feel like I've made bad decisions. How are we able to have this nuanced conversation? So long as we are still supporting the fact that a woman can make the decision that she needs to make, that a person needs to make about their pregnancy, totally fine. So long as my personal beliefs are not infringing on that. And so get bold, Democrats. It shouldn't have taken the 2016 election for us to actually get overturning the Hyde Amendment into the Democratic Party platform. Period. Like, I mean, it still boggles my mind. And you know what? We should never have had like Alina Wen also. Just want to th throw that out there because it does show like we don't learn our lessons. Like talk about bold leadership. Like there's no way that any of that should have happened. Anyway, let's keep it moving because I think we're going to start to get ourselves in trouble with all of this. Um, we don't need to make the moment messier. That's not what this is all about. <laughs> no comment. No comment. <laughs> okay, good place is all about the afterlife. Alencia, what do you think the afterlife of Roe will or should be? Like without these this federal protection for abortion access, what can we expect? And especially would love to hear about like the medication abortion piece. And I think that confuses a lot of people or a lot of people tend to have questions about that. Like, you know, does it, will it really mean that it's still accessible or, or what will that look like? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I was asked this question the other day too. And I was like, how long do I have to talk about that? Because I mean, even under president Obama, there were hundreds of abortion restrictions and states that were passed, not just introduced passed. And so, yes, we'll see those across the South and, and rural areas and a lot of swing states. And then we'll also see bans on emergency contraception. We'll see probably, and I've thrown this into the conversation, I was like, y'all, sex education has also been not taught in some schools, and that's going to uh, impact people's ability to teach proper sex education. I am really concerned and sad for the people who already live in states where there might be only one center to provide abortion care. And those tend to be the states where people have low incomes, where people do not have insurance, where they don't have childcare. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. The map, you can overlap the map, uh, several maps of where we have the 
poorest outcomes of STDs and unintended pregnancies and all of these things, they're just going to get worse. And someone said, well, what about all these states like California, New York, and all these states that they can, you know, abortion access will be, you know, still legal there and protected and expanded. And I said, well, one, these states cannot absorb the amount of people that will influx, one. Two, there are already barriers for people to obtain services. But three, I, and I I feel like we're talking about what's going to happen and we sound like conspiracy theorists, but it is actually so true, especially when we see some of these crazy laws like in Texas. Like the fact that you can criminalize people for helping assisting someone to access an abortion. So what's gonna happen in one of these states that where abortion becomes illegal and a woman or a person is extremely horrified, they need to figure out where to access care, a nurse can't help them, a doctor can't help them, Uber driver can't help them, is their phone going to be tracked? Like if they Google, uh, you know, where can I get an abortion? Like, I, I don't think people are realizing how impactful this will be and how more people will be criminalized because I, and I wanna, and I say more because Black and brown women have already been criminalized for accessing abortion care in some of these states, these extremely red states. Someone said, you know, well, the Supreme Court argument is about push, putting it back into the states and, you know, that the states will just determine it. And I said, mm, Republicans are saying that right now, but as soon as Mitch McConnell gets a president, gets a Senate and gets a house, he will pass a federal abortion ban. And we will become such a nation that it is incredibly hard to have families that people will lose their lives and for whatever reason. Um, and it will be a very scary place to be in. And, and even people who have, and someone said, well, and I'm saying a lot of someone says, I don't wanna give away these journalists and these activists and a lot of, I've talked to corporations, I've talked to a lot of people behind the scenes about what they can do. And someone said, well, you know, women with privilege will still be able to accept they're gonna get a rude awakening too. Like this is going to have catastrophic impacts. There was a physician, I won't name them, but you all know who they are. Um, I saw them last week at an event and we were talking to some people who work on policy in Congress. And we were saying, I, I raised the point that even medical schools won't be teaching this procedure. And this physician was telling me that they've actually encountered in her, um, her sphere of other physicians. One physician ran into an issue with an anesthesiologist. They had to manage a miscarriage, but the anesthesiologist said, I don't believe in abortion, so I'm not going to administer anesthesiology. This physician also told me that some of the some medical schools are taking it upon themselves to not teach this procedure. And so, and actually beyond medical schools, nursing schools as well. And so the necessity to utilize abortion care to provide health care to people is literally being threatened. And we haven't even started talking about, you know, all of the fertility treatments that people right. sometimes access when it comes to trying to have a, a, a a family, and just so many other things that I don't want to get into because, again, this culture war, we can't even have these medical conversations that, quite frankly, we shouldn't even be having to have these medical conversations. Like, I trust a doctor who goes and gets their medical degree and this nurse who goes and gets her degree, and I trust that they, and these scientists who know what they're doing, I trust them. Yeah. I, for the most part, I advocate for more like 
obviously more people of color to be considered while they're <laughs> figuring out yeah. medication and treatments, but right. Like I shouldn't even be explaining a procedure right. to someone. Or having to figure it out. I think the, the good place does a good job of, of, of shaking up everything we've ever known. And the scary thing is the confusion. And our naivete was going in thinking there are good things and there are bad things, or I know how things work. Everything is good here, everything is bad here. I know what the rules are. But you don't even have to live in a state that passes a ban for the chaos and confusion of having to now navigate laws at the state level to impact us. I was talking to, to uh, some, some friends and colleagues after Oklahoma's ban was passed before it went into effect to say, oh my God, are they gonna criminalize everyone who donates to abortion funds now? And it, the point is, it doesn't matter. You can really pr prosecute that right now. Right now, while Roe is in place and, and you know New York is a safe haven, California is a safe haven. If somebody was, was traveling from Oklahoma to New York or, or to Colorado or to California, the people funding the abortion wouldn't be funding something in Oklahoma and probably wouldn't be in Oklahoma. So like Oklahoma has no right to arrest them. But the fact is the news is printing these, these articles giving us one by one these different facts about what's allowed and what's not allowed, what's going to happen, what could happen, what might happen, what's been ruled on, but is not enacted yet, what's enjoined in court. And why now every single person who might ever need an abortion or to give someone advice who might ever need an abortion has to navigate all of these policies. And as you just pointed out, is going to start overcompensating and assuming more is restricted than even is restricted, like med, med schools dropping the already rare elective abortion trainings. I mean, this, I was just thinking about this recently. Next month is my 20th anniversary of my first job in Repro when I've got my first job at, at Guttmacher. And that year, I remember reading and talking to reporters and giving them stats because they were reporting on the aging population of abortion providers and how we didn't have enough people and it wasn't taught and it wasn't required. And so if that was true in 2002, I can't imagine what it's going to be like, you know, just a year from now. So it's like, yeah, why should we, we don't need to be experts in all these things. We I, trust people and trust Trust, trust medical professionals. Trust medical professionals. Like it, it's just like to that point, and it's it, it. We're just constantly in this like, what if and what does this mean? And I'm so glad you actually mentioned that. I'll, I'll say this: we're having this conversation, and I I have to remind people that abortion is still legal yeah, in this exactly. country. Exactly. Right? In, in every state. In every state. Yeah. And, you know, Alencia, you know, Layla and I have worked internationally um, for a lot of our careers. And so, you know, it's also important to remind people that, A, the U.S. is going against the global trends. Like, broadly speaking, many places around the world are decriminalizing and or liberalizing their policies around abortion rights. We just saw this with Benin, Argentina, um, Mexico. And so it, it is like alarming in that way. And also the phenomenon that Layla was just describing, we've seen it play out globally because the U.S. actually has much more stringent draconian anti-democratic policies um, like the global gag rule that they've enacted globally. Um, and so we've seen with data the chilling effect that these policies can have and how people do overcorrect. Um, so it is really dark and um, we don't, however, want to end on a dark note. Yes. Let's not do that. <laughs> um, so first of all, we will in show notes and um, in our outro, we'll link to some resources Alencia, if you want to share where you think folks should be sending their time and resources um, to work on these issues, we will do that. But we would love to 
end today's episode with our cringe fire, which is something we do with all of our guests, um, just to get your quick take on life and sex and pop culture. So we will um, go through four questions, our four cringe fire questions that we ask everyone, and just tell us kind of what comes to mind for you first. I love it. I have something in mind, but I'm hoping that you'll ask it. Ooh, if we don't ask it, I will share. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, they're very themed around sex and TV, like the podcast. So the first question is, uh, other than The Good Place, what else are you binging right now? Ooh, I'm binging Snowfall. Ooh. Ooh. And I'm going to have to say this. Damson Idris. He's so cute. Google I mean, imaging. He, he is so cute. I mean, I people are always like, oh, he's like young Denzel. And... There's a moment in the first season where he gets his swag and you're like, oh yeah, this is Denzel in training day. Now granted, he plays a teenager, but he's he's definitely in his late 20s. So Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. It's okay. about the crack ep- epidemic. So it's it's actually not light, but he's <laughs> he's beautiful. <laughs> Noted. Uh we love those recommendations. Okay. Is there something that you're finding very cringy at the moment? It could be a law, a trend, a tweet. Okay, all of these laws are cringy. I'm not, you know what? Let's stay on some levity. But, or let's actually stay out of politics and policy because that's really dark. I have seen this trend on social, Twitter and Instagram, where people are kind of policing how Black women are expressing ourselves right now. There was this whole, and this is like a whole nother like podcast probably, but like there's this whole like back and forth on like what this quote unquote soft life means. And I'm like, what, what are y'all beefing about right now? I saw that. Yeah. And I'm like, can black women just live? Like literally, like we can't even live among our, if the soft life is not for you, it's not for you. If it's not for me, it's not for me, whatever. But I want black women to have abundance, joy, and ease, ease in our lives. And Stop policing us. So I think it's it's been really cringy to see other Black women policing how Black women are expressing themselves. And yeah. I thought we had moved past that. Cringy, but a very good answer. Is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you would like to see better portrayed on TV or in pop culture generally? Ooh, I have a lot there. <laughs> I go back to my frustration with, and shout out to Yvonne and Issa and all of them, but <laughs> I get a little frustrated with the lack of condom use in oh. television. And, you know, I used to get frustrated. So some of the work that I did at Planned Parenthood was working with the entertainment industry and storylines and stuff. And there was this, again, through the white feminist framework, it was very, we have to have a whole abortion storyline. I'm like, no, we don't. Like, we should just go to a show that has girl, like a group of girlfriends at brunch, kikiing about whatever. And one of them is like, oh yeah, girl, I had to have plan B this morning. And then they're ordering their tacos or whatever, mm-hmm. because that's how it happens sometimes. And when you're having, I love great sex scenes. It's wonderful. But like, pause to put the condom on or pause to be like, wait, you're on birth control, right? Like just have those like actual real moments. I will never forget. And I remember actually uh, mentioning this to the writer and uh, of um, Love and Basketball and I'm slipping on her name, Gina, I forget her last name, but I told her that I remember in Love and Basketball when Q and Monica that night at, was at prom or like the school dance and they had sex for the first time. He paused. You didn't see him put the condom on. You just, pa- he didn't even mention it, but there was the pause. Right. Yeah. And I was like, 
that's all we need. I don't need a whole, yes. In some instances we need a whole storyline, but actually we don't like, this is a normal part of people's lives. And so let's normalize and humanize sexuality and the ways in which we talk about it with our friends. Like that's what we want to see on TV. And if I found this research, I think it might be like 10 years old, but over 50% of the population believes that the sex education information that they get in scripted television is true. Oof, so like pop scary. culture has a responsibility to it. And it, again, it just does not have to be so in your face. Like there's a way to do it. And then you remember it. Like I remember that moment from Love and Basketball and that movie came out over 20 years ago. But it is, it is a recurring theme on this show. Uh, yeah, it, it comes up a lot. So it is such an important point. And as someone who watched it in her teen years, which corresponded to certain things, <laughs> who knows what that pause produced in a generation? The pause, the pause that helped a generation out. Okay, <laughs> amazing answer. This is um, our last question for you today, Alencia. Do you have a favorite scene? You might have just mentioned one of them. Um, a favorite scene depicting sex or sexuality in pop culture. Oh, I guess I'll stick with that one because it was so culturally responsible and he was yes. patient and gentle with her. The only thing about it is like, it just wasn't good sex, but like <laughs> no one's first time in. <laughs> I can hear this woman's work like right now, like in my head. I'm like, ah. but then I think about like all of like the good sex scenes. A lot of good sex scenes out there are horribly irresponsible when it comes yeah. to safe sex. And actually they like perpetuate horrific tropes and language that we don't like to associate with sex. So I'm going to stick with that one. Right. Well, they started having better sex, but no, I don't think so. But that one was <laughs> responsible. But you know what? I'm having that moment because it was very real, right? Yeah. Like it was there very real. Yeah. It was real. Amazing. The, all oh, wait. Answers. Oh, go for it. I do have one more because this is Ooh. what I was thinking Ooh, about. Bonus. Well, I was thinking about Meg the Stallion and her answer. Fans yes. off her bodies. Eh, I love her. I also think WAP was just such a cultural pop culture moment. Like, yes. And I sit on Warner Music Group, Social Justice Fund Board. Cardi B is on Warner Music Group's label. And we're having this conversation one time and they're like, well, what do you literally and it's a whole bunch of like black executives on this board. And I can talk about it because it's public who's on the board. And so they would call me and they're like, but like, what do you think about WAP when like you've worked in reproductive rights? And I think they were surprised by my answer. I was like, listen, I don't express myself like that, but let me tell you how Cardi and Meg literally come up with the anthems for the reproductive justice movement, because if you listen to what they're saying, they're owning their bodies, they're owning their sexuality and telling the people that they are interested in, this is how you're going to treat me. So yes, I have my booty in your face. I know how to twerk. I'm talking about how I can tongue you down and all these other things and anacondas or whatever. And at the same time, are like, but you are going to respect my decisions and respect my body. And yeah. I love it. I, I absolutely love it. And I think in many times they have to make the repro movement catch up to them because I know there was like a lot of head scratching around macaroni in a pot. I, I know for a fact. So. Hello. 
keeping us honest. Um, <laughs> shout out to Cardi. <laughs> Just don't put Kylie Jenner in your next video, please. Right. That was, yeah, we're going to have to work on it. Amazing. Alencia, you are such the phenomenal guest. We so appreciate you. We've been wanting to have you on the podcast since we started it. I'm so glad we could like find the perfect episode for you. I love it. Thank you all for having me and would love to come back. We will take you up on that. And thank you for letting us take up more time than we claimed we would. This was too good to stop talking. Yay. Thank you. Thank you to our guest, Alencia Johnson. You can find her at Twitter at Alencia Johnson. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. Our ad music is by Siddhartha Corsis. DL Dallas Engram created our theme song. You can find Siddhartha on Bandcamp and DL on SoundCloud. Once again, the best way to support the show is by visiting patreon.com backslash cringe watchers and subscribe. You get cool perks like a shout out on the show and early access to live events. You can also show your love by giving us a five star rating on Apple iTunes and leaving us a cute review and follow us at cringe watchers on Instagram and Twitter. You can always email us with partnership or topic ideas at cringewatcherspod at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for cringe watching with us. Yeah.